Welcome to the Financially Independent Teachers Podcast, where educators come together to discuss their journey on the road to financial independence. Now, please join our co-host, Dave and Brandon, as they prepare to help other educators get fit with their finances. Welcome, everybody, and thanks for joining us in Episode 6 of the Financially Independent Teachers Podcast. If you would like to share your journey to financial independence, please shoot me an email at getfiteducator at gmail.com, and please welcome my co-host, as always, Brandon, to the show. How are we doing, Coach Spies? Uh Doing really well. I enjoyed the conversation uh, prior to the recording here, so uh, looking forward to continuing that and, and hearing all from da- uh, all the information that David has on our on our topic for today. So that's going to be interesting. Brandon, I want you to review, if you don't mind, episode five, where we had Mike, the middle school math teacher. We have a theme of math teachers on the show so far. Yeah. And the takeaways from the real estate lessons that he gave us last week. Yeah. You know, I would encourage anyone who has ever even considered getting into the rental property real estate game, go back and listen to that episode if you didn't hear it the first time. It would be impossible really for me to just kind of wrap up all of the different um, points, advice, information that he gave. Um, And so, you know, one of the things that I've discovered already, and I was kind of already suspicious that this would be the case prior to, but it's, it's turning out to really be true, is that the methods are all different for people achieving financial success, but um, the principles are all the same. Um, or very similar people have their own unique ways. And I mean, it was, it was really neat listening to Mike talk about his rental property and and the way he was using that to invest in his Roth IRA and, you know, and, and, you know, he's acquiring assets and he's doing these things. Matter of fact, he has five things that he tells people, especially his students. And, and, you know, those were, um, I'm going to kind of review those. He said, get out of debt, get an emergency fund, invest in a Roth IRA, acquire assets and establish a college fund. And along with that, he has a fear of debt, um, a willingness to delay gratification and to work hard and, you know, frugality. He's been frugal since he was 10 years old. And so these principles, you know, no matter how late you might be starting, these principles have to become habits, it it seems to me. And um, if I might just say that something that I thought was incredible when we were talking about this before the show, he actually said that most of his relationships prior to him getting married were ruined because of his frugality. And I have to tell you, I mean, I, I'm, I'm feeling some kind of way about that because I have not lost relationships in the past for anything so noble <laughs> as frugality. It's always been for uh, reasons much less flattering. So I need to I think, uh, I think women are generally intimidated by your good looks and your intellect coach. So I don't um, know if Dave, you scare I'm them have off. To correct you there. It's it's, I have to try to distract them from those looks. If I, if I'm ever to get a date, <clears throat> it was a great episode, great episode. Rental real estate is not for everyone, but for those who want to do it, it can be very, very profitable and it can be a good thing for generational wealth. Today's topic we're going to move on is student loans and we have two history slash political science majors here who love to engage in the political climate. And we are going to do our best today with this hot button issue, not to get political, um, but to be real and talk about some of the numbers. And I think we both did a little bit of research 
uh, before we get the budget teacher on here to discuss how can you tackle the student loan debt, we did a little bit of research. What did you come up with, Coach? You know, I teach American history, or I have in the past, teach mostly civics and economics now. And when you look at the history of student loan debt in our country, um, you know, in 1920, go back to the 1920s, there was less than a million people enrolled in college at that point in American history. Um, like, like around 600,000 in the year 1920, I think it was. All wealthy white men who were going to college. Um, as you advance through the 1900s, um, of course, you get the GI Bill. That made room for millions to be able to go to school. But as you start advancing through the 1900s, there, there's methods by which people can get into student, can take out student loans. But those, the college the tuition was fairly affordable. The loans weren't so bad. Um, as we get into the 80s, uh, less federal money is being spent. Uh, states are subsidizing uh, college educations less. And um, therefore, people are having to take out more money. Uh, I think that a lot of our millennials today will tell, I, I don't know if it's right to call them millennials, a lot of my, my students and former students, they have been sold this meme that if they don't go to college, they can't be successful. And so they're willing to go into tremendous debt. And there is, and I, actually, there's some statistics to back that up, although we know that trade school and things like that can render a great return as far as um, a, a great life. But, um, uh, you know, and then enter, you know, sort of the 1990s and we start getting these for-profit universities and the amount of money. I mean, it's amazing how much tuition has gone up. And as it goes up and government subsidization goes down, but we don't we're not relenting on this advice. You have to go to college. You have to go to college. You have to go to college. These kids are taking out bigger and bigger and bigger loans. And that's the skinny of the history on this thing. And um, and so right now we're in, a, in an environment where um, we've got kids with, you know, they essentially have, are strapped with mortgages right now because of student loan debt. Yeah, I think and it's, really, uh, it's a real crisis. It's a real problem. It is. I think it's really interesting. And I talk to my students about this. Think about being 18 years old. Many of our students as high school teachers have never had a job. I know that my parents told me in high school, your job is to get good grades and, and be an athlete. And, and be yeah. the best person you can be. I, I was probably a C at all of those. Um, so I didn't even really succeed at that. But imagine a, an 18 year old like me who never had a job in high school other than doing the lawn care for buddies and doing some mulch jobs, but I never had any references from a job. Imagine me walking into PNC Bank or Wells Fargo and saying, hey, I'd like to take out a loan for $50,000 to start a small business or to buy a Corvette they would laugh you out of the bank. Yeah. But if I were to say, hey, I want to go to Duke University, which is a private institution in Durham, North Carolina, that's $75,000 a year. And I said, hey, can I borrow $300,000? They're going to say, sure, go ahead. So it's really interesting what we'll give an 18-year-old when it comes to, to college, but maybe what we won't give them when it comes to starting a business or to invest or things like that. But to be fair, the statistics say that you're going to make 80% more over the course of your lifetime with a college degree than you will with only a high school diploma. Yeah, it'll be and so we know you have to get some education yep. beyond high school. And so yep. there, there's this, this, that's straight away though, a temptation to be willing to give an 18 year old $300,000. Um, and it's a temptation we've fallen for. Absolutely. Let's let's go over a couple stats before we uh, get our guest involved. We're going to get him in here at about 60 seconds. But right now, the student loan debt, according to NerdWallet, uh, is standing at $1.7 trillion. Uh, 
Uh, also, according to Nerd Wallet, we have about $3 billion every year in America that goes unused with FAFSA. And we'll talk a little bit about FAFSA, I'm sure, later on. 37% of high school graduates never complete the FAFSA form. So they might qualify for free money to go to college, but they never fill out the form. And I've noticed a trend in the first five episodes. Uh, episode one, Brandon Akins, no student loan debt. Um, he was a teaching fellow in North Carolina, qualified for that, basically a scholarship. Um, you give service to the state and then you end up getting your loans forgiven. Um, guest number two, our $1.9 million net worth math teacher, high school math teacher. Again, we have a theme on the math teachers. Um, and his wife are better with money, apparently. Yeah, they were both ROTC folks. So they went to college for free. Um, our last guest, Mike from Wilmington, who has three paid for properties, two rentals before he's 40 years old on his way to be a millionaire. His parents blessed him with a free college education. So we're seeing a trend that if you don't have student loan debt and you can start your career, even as a teacher making maybe 30 to $40,000 a year, you can navigate that landscape. But if you become an educator and you take on 50, 60, $100,000 of student loan debt, man, it's a really, really tough uphill battle. Yeah. to get out of your situation, which is really, really sad. So let's bring in David, our guest today. And he's also affectionately known as the budget teacher. And he's going to try to provide some solutions to our audience today on maybe what they can do to tackle the student loan debt. How are we doing, Mr. David? Hey, good. How are you guys? We are doing great. I appreciate you having me here. So uh, what's going on in your world? Where are you uh, checking in from tonight? What town are you in? Where are you living now? So Kansas City, uh, Kansas City, and as you mentioned, the Chiefs. And so, uh, you know, go Chiefs. <laughs> it's an unfortunate Super Bowl, but uh, here in Missouri. And uh, yeah, that's where I'm from. So you're in Missouri. We're in different time zones tonight. And I appreciate you working with us on that. Uh, and man, my Browns actually played you guys pretty good in the playoffs. Yeah, it was a good game. Surprisingly, uh, the Browns did not want a playoff game in, I believe, like 25 years. <laughs> so uh, I think the Chiefs are probably not going anywhere with a guy like Patrick Mahomes. So mm -hmm. you're in Missouri. You're in Kansas City. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself. What are you up to? Are you married? Do you have any kids? This is a teacher podcast. Are you a teacher? Were you a teacher? What's going on in your life with education and the family? Sure. So I am married with one child. Um, I've got a little girl who's almost two years old and um, my wife is a current um, Spanish high school Spanish teacher and I was a high school math teacher for eight years and I also taught computer science and um, ACT prep in there as well for math so um, I actually resigned from that last uh, May and then um, I have been financial coaching and kind of doing a lot of different things in the financial world uh, for the last year. And I tacked on um, certified student loan professional in December because I found that um, as I was working with people, student loans were a big problem, especially for, for most of the teachers that I was talking to. It just, it was a recurrent theme that, um, you know, I wish I could do this, but I have these student loans hanging over my head. And so mm. as I, saw that I was like, there's some, there's gotta be something that I can do to help people. Um, and so I, I looked into this program and uh, they brought me in and, and basically showed me the student loan landscape and, and how to navigate that. Yeah. You know, and I'm really looking forward to, uh, to kind of getting into that with you as far as uh, you know, your transition from teaching into a, you know, kind of a new career. 
Um, but before we get to that, though, um, just going back into your background a little bit as, as you were growing up and, and advancing through school, uh, when did you decide you wanted to be a teacher? That's actually kind of a funny one. Um, it wasn't until after I graduated college. Uh, I actually graduated college with a finance major and or a degree in finance. Both of my parents were teachers. Uh, I've got aunts and uncles who are teachers, grandparents who are teachers and cousins who are teachers. And I said, there is no way I'm going to become a teacher. I'd seen, you know, my dad, my mom, and uh, there, I was like, nope, not going to do it. And I ended up working in an entry level job for a finance company and uh, uh, sat in a cubicle. And I remember it was a December and I went in and it was dark whenever I went in the morning and it was dark whenever I came out at night. And I was like, this absolutely sucks. And so uh, I was 23, I think at the time, and I quit and went back to school for two and a half years to get my uh, teaching degree. So, yeah. So with your parents, both being in education, you know, really our podcast is all about, and it's going to grow and it's going to change, but our podcast initially at least is providing stories of teachers to share with other teachers to show that you can be successful financially uh, as an educator. So what was that like as a kid growing up with both of your parents being in education uh, did it feel like you guys were struggling financially or were they frugal? Did you feel like, gosh, I don't know if I could, I could be a teacher because I've seen how mom and dad have had to operate. I want to go out there and I want to chase the dollars in the financial world. What did, what did all that look like? I think up? that's kind of what it had to do with because yeah, we, when we were growing up, I have a brother and a sister and money was always tight. Now my parents are both very frugal and they found ways to make things work, but it was always a, uh, a challenge because we're talking about whenever I was born, it was, you know, mid eighties. And back then, especially here in Missouri, and I, I don't know about the rest of the country, but teachers were not paid well. And um, I, I feel like, especially here right now, um, we do make a much better salary overall, but um yeah, back then I think it was tough, really tough. And so I think that was part of the, the reason why huh, at first I actually went to engineering school for two years and I didn't really enjoy it. But again, I think I was just kind of chasing the, you know, everybody's like, you're good with numbers. You should go make big money being an engineer. And I was like, okay, yeah, that sounds great. And I, and I didn't really enjoy it. And then they were like, you know, I was like, okay, I'm going to quit that. Hey, you should go into finance because you can make big money with big money with that. And you're, you're good with numbers. Okay. I'll go try that. And so eventually, uh, you know, I didn't find the fulfillment, I guess. And, and teaching did give me that for a long time. And also I was a coach and I really loved the coaching side, but, uh, yeah, I think that's part of it was just, you know, I'd seen my parents in that, in that landscape and I was like, Nope, I'm not, I'm not going to follow in, the, in their footsteps. But at some point you just end up gravitating towards it, I guess. I know that when I was a freshman in high school, I was in uh, one of those career classes, uh, computer class, uh, future career class, technology. And we had to do one of those interest inventory surveys about what do you think you want to be when you grow up? I was 14 years old. I had no clue what I wanted to be. But as I did my research as a 14 year old, it came back to teacher. And I remember even interviewing someone that I knew in the world of education. And when I went off to college, education was not my priority. It was being a college baseball player. I could give two craps about education. I was just there to play baseball. Uh, <laughs> being honest, I was not a good student. Uh, and I remember I wanted to be a computer information systems guy. And after sitting through some of those classes, my freshman year, the professor is trying to teach us the basics of coding and sitting basically in that cubicle. I'm on ESPN. I'm playing fantasy football. I had no attention for it. 
And then I heard a, a roommate of mine was like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be a teacher. And I'm like, really, how do you go about doing that? And it wasn't until my junior year of college that I said, I'm going to go ahead and make this switch. But I was very hesitant going into college, even though I think I knew that I wanted to be a teacher. The financial side of things really was a roadblock in my mind, but I'm so happy that I've ended up doing it. Um, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about your college experience, where you went to college, uh, and maybe your student loan situation when you graduated? Sure. So I, I actually um, got a full ride to the first school. It was the University of Missouri Rolla, and uh, it was all 100% based on ACT score. And so I, I scored nice, uh, nicely on the ACT, but um, I, I was stupid about it because I didn't really apply to any of the, the scholarships, right? And it, it I'll say I got lucky, but I don't know if it was fully luck, but uh, I didn't really do any of the extras that I could have done on that, which I kind of regret looking back. Um, and then some of those scholarships transferred with me. I, I ended up transferring to a school, a state school called Missouri State University. And uh, that's where I swam and then got a degree in finance and ended up graduating uh, student loan free, partially uh, some grandparent help partially some parent help and then partially the scholarships. And then I went back to school um, two and a half years after I graduated to a school, another state school here in Missouri called University of Missouri, St. Louis. And that's where I got my teaching credentials and uh, some of my master's knocked out as well. I did take out uh, $12,000 in loans at that point because I was working a restaurant at night and uh, trying to do school during the day. And I just needed a little bit of assistance on the, on the back end there. So you took out the $12,000 uh, to go back. Did you pay that back pretty quickly or did that hang over your head for a while or how did that work? So uh, I actually didn't really get started into the personal finance world until I was about 29. I, mm -hmm. you know, I, I don't know if that's a common theme throughout or not, but, uh, but I would say I messed around for most of my twenties. Right. And then whenever I caught on, I caught on hard and fast and I went, I went all in. Right. And so that first year, um, I paid off all my student loans, my car, the whole, like I, every debt that I had, I was, I was trying to knock out. And, uh, so I would say that they hung over my head. If you want to say that from like 27 to 29, I was paying the bare minimum, but I didn't really feel like it was hanging over my head because, uh, I didn't, necessarily feel the effects of the loans on me at that point in time. Whenever I started to learn personal finance, I was like, no, I got to get rid of these as quickly as I can. So I'm really interested to hear this because there's been a little theme on the show, but you're married, beautiful wife from Cleveland, Ohio, by the way, right? Yes. Um, Good memory. You got serious about being into personal finance and I feel the same way. I've always been fairly frugal and I was kind of into it, but I was like you, I went scorched earth and completely started paying off vehicles, selling vehicles to pay off uh, car payments and, and all the different things. Was your wife on board with this? Did you go crazy into being the personal finance budget teacher that you are now? Or did she kind of develop on this journey with you? How did that look? She 100% developed on the journey with me. Now, uh, we actually started our family budget the day we got back from our honeymoon. And I would never advise that to anybody in a million years because it did not work out well. And, you know, we're, we're changing our, our lifestyle anyways, because we're just brand, brand new married at that point. And uh, all of a sudden I'm like, Hey, let's do this thing called a budget. It's going to be great. Just follow along and, and, you know, and 
we had some, some uh, personal spending categories. And right out of the gate, um, she went out every year she does this. At the very beginning of the year, she buys herself a new outfit. She's a teacher right for the first day of school, right? And uh, so because of that, and with school starting, you know, mid-August, um, she had used up most of her personal spend money already. And it was one of those where it was like, you're telling me what to do with my money. And I've never had this before. You know, we're, we're both kind of a little bit later in life getting married. And uh, she was mad at me. But the truth was, is that I tried to fix, you know, as much as I could. I was like, okay, let me, let me make this right. I gave her some of my personal spend money. And I was like, listen, we just got to get through the first month. We got to get through the second month. After that, let's, you know, build on that. So, so it, it got off to a little bit of a rocky, rocky start, but, but a, after, after that little uh, episode, I'm sure, you know, I, I, like you said, it went really well and, and you guys uh, kind of progressed forward as a team, you know, you can kind of see that that's been a theme uh, for sure is that, is that husbands and wives who do, you know, when they achieve financial success, they're on the same page. And I would imagine that uh, it, the opposite is true. So um, so, all right. So you've, you've, you've been teaching for eight years. You actually, you know, you went $12,000 into debt to go back and get your teaching certificate and some of your masters and all that. Um, and then you're going to make the decision to get out of it eight years later. So um, talk to us a little bit about, about what went into that transition. So the biggest thing was, is that I was unhappy with how other teachers were treated by anyone in the financial world. That was my main driving force was that uh, I, I looked around and I'm like, it seems like teachers are at the bottom of the barrel as far as who's willing and wanting to help them with their finances. And so that was a, an issue that I've had for a long time. And it really just kind of came out where I was like, I'm going to, uh, I, I have to quit this because I want to help other teachers with their money. And that's kind of, uh, so I've, I've known Dave, I think we mentioned that earlier, but uh, we've been talking for a while and it really stems from both, both of us having that dream of helping other educators with, with their monies. And it sounds like Brandon, you're kind of in the same boat. And so as I, as I quit my job, I said, okay, I'm, I'm done with this. I'm going to focus on at the time it was just budgeting because that's the foundation of anybody having a, a good, um, you know, financial future is you have to know where your money's going. 100%. And so that, that was the, the, the main thing that, that I focused on was just looking at your cash flow, what's coming in, what's going out. Um, do you know how much money you make each month? A lot of teachers don't. And, uh, and that blows my mind, but it's true. I can tell you why. Yeah. Yeah. Probably yeah the, the reason why is because they never think they're going to have any. Yeah. I think, I think that's, true. I mean, that's me. And I think that's a lot of teachers. They, 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 they take a vow of poverty when they begin, they become teachers. They don't think they're ever going to make any real wealth. And so they, uh, you know, they don't, they, they have kind of a, a, they take the vow of poverty. And then as long as I can pay my bills, I'm all right. And I don't worry about it. Yeah, no, hundred percent true. I'll tell you that right before. So this is a, a little side note, but right before we, uh, before I um, quit my teaching job, uh, my wife and I were saving 50% of all of our income into um, Roth IRA, 403Bs, 457s, HSA, different, different vehicles like that and a brokerage account on top of it. So 50%. So it is possible. And that's what I try to tell people is, and, and we did not, uh, you know, first of all, we're in Missouri. It's, it's not like, you know, we're not living in San Francisco or New York or some place where we're getting paid hundreds of thousands of dollars. Can you tell us what the average teacher salary is in Missouri? Oh, I think it's about 60,000, maybe a little okay. higher. 
our, our district top ends at um, like 82,000 and the, the new teachers make 39,000. Gotcha. So, yeah. But, um, but, you know, we didn't scrimp by on anything, but we were very, very meticulous about our spending on, you know, making sure that we actually spend money where we value it and where we care about it rather than just um, letting it go. And so, you know, if we have bills, we'll call and negotiate those bills down. If we have, um, you know, expenses that we see are coming out of our account, we'll start to look at those like, is this something we actually care about or is this something that we've let ourselves just kind of drip money into? And if we don't care about it, then we stop it and we figure out a way to, to, to not put money in that spot anymore. And what we do care about, which we care about uh, going out to eat every once in a while, right? Who, who doesn't love a good date night? We love going on just vacations. Don't talk about the budget on the date night, right? That kind of ruins the mood. <laughs> it does It does ruin, ruin the mood, you're right. We love going on vacation. We do all those things. We just don't do them... Uh, you know, without having a plan ahead of time. So what you're saying is, as you were a math teacher in high school and your wife's a high school Spanish teacher, you were essentially living off of one of your incomes and then the other income from the other spouse, whoever it ended up being, you guys invested that entire thing. 100%. Very, very cool stuff. So as you started out, you, you, the main thing that you, the main service you were offering was helping teachers how to know, understand their paycheck and then to be able to budget their money. That was the biggest thing that you started off with, with this new career. Yeah. So it's, it's pretty crazy, but a lot of people that I've worked with um, don't even have any idea where that money's going. For example, um, you know, a husband and wife, they were both at one point paying for Netflix that I was working with. And it's like, well, uh, that's only a $13 charge, 14, I think now. Right. But it's like, okay, if you are double paying for Netflix, what else are you doing inside of this budget? And so then when we started sitting down and looking at it, usually, you know, we would come up with 500 plus dollars a month that they were either overspending or didn't even know. Like I have all my clients do this thing called a subscription audit. And it's basically just going through your subscriptions only and saying, hey, do I even use this at all? And if the answer is no, drop it. We don't need it anymore. And that could be magazines, that could be, you know, um, different uh, entertainment, you know, Hulu or Netflix, whatever, whatever it is, if you're not using it, why are you paying for it? Yeah. Yeah. That's the new model that a lot of these businesses are going to, and they're very intelligent when, with them doing it is they'll get you to sign up and then they hope you forget about it. And then once you get accustomed to this standard of living, like I've even thought about it, we pay like 70 bucks a month for what used to be called uh direct TV now, but AT&T has taken it over with. So it's like streaming, streaming television. And honestly, besides watching an occasional sporting event, I can't remember the last time that I even turned the TV on to watch it. I'm like, that's $70 a month, you know, over the course of a year, that's almost a thousand dollars. Why not maybe cancel it or consider canceling it until football season comes back around. And then I watch it again. That's, that is the cool thing about some of the new technology is you can do the month to month thing where, you sign up for a month and then after that month you can cancel it and then sign back up. But it seems like you've really shifted your business. I mean, I know you're still helping teachers. You're still doing the budgeting, but you told me that you took on a new special certification with uh, the business on student loans. And that's really the main thing that I want to talk about today 
is what you're doing, what you offer. Tell us a little bit about your business and let's dive a little deeper in the next 25, 30 minutes about the student loan thing. Because honestly, I am pretty green and I don't know much about it. Yeah. So um, as I mentioned, the main topic that kept coming up was teachers wouldn't have that money to invest or to do things with their future because they felt trapped by their student loans, right? And you mentioned a whole bunch of those statistics early on. And I've got uh, some more here as well for you. So, um, and this kind of goes towards the uh, PSLF, which is public service loan forgiveness, right? And a lot of teachers are trying to qualify for that because basically the, the idea is, is that you pay 120 payments, which is essentially 10 years of payments. And at the end of those 10 years, you have your student loans and interest forgiven tax-free. Um, and it's a great program for teachers. But here's the problem is a lot of people don't understand all the rules for it. And if you don't know the rules, how can you play by the rules, right? And so some interesting uh, statistics here is, first of all, 56% of all the people that said that they were going to try for public service loan forgiveness um, had not made a single qualifying payment. And that was in 2018 uh, that they did this study. Out of those 56%, they said that 13% didn't even have the right loans to qualify and 32% were in the wrong payment plan to qualify. Mm. And so um, that was part of the reason why I wanted to go down this path was because people need education on student loans, just like with anything, you know, if you don't know it, you can't be, uh, it's not your fault that you don't know it. Let's put it that way, but you still need to try to learn it and pick it up, whether it's from listening to a podcast or from hiring somebody that can help you, whatever the case is, uh, if you think that you're going down this route and you're actually not, we need to get that fixed, right? If uh, so, you've told us a little bit. I, I I don't know if is there something more that you could tell us in terms of how student loans work? Have you already kind of exhausted that, or is there more? Is there is there anything more to to get out of that question about how the student loans work? I guess the the number one thing that I'll say is that um, you know don't borrow what you don't need, right? And unfortunately, where I come in right now is helping people with debt that they've already taken on. So it's going to be teachers that are out of college in the classroom. Um, now, if I could go back and get to those kids, let's call them kids, 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds who are taken on, on this, uh, I've known so many people that have uh, taken on debt because they wanted to fund their lifestyle rather than trying to pay for school, right? And so that would be the number one thing that I would say is, don't take on more than you have to take. But I think that probably your podcast, who you guys are talking to, are people that are already in the profession, right? And so you already have the loans. How do we deal with them now? And so I don't know necessarily about, um, you know, what I could offer for them on that part, but I can help them with how to structure repayments in order to get that cost as low as possible and to take advantage of some of the awesome programs that are out there for teachers. Can we, uh, can we try to break this down on an elementary level? Because again, I was very blessed to have my college paid for. Now, it's funny that you said that because when I got my master's degree, it was about $12,000, similar to what you were talking about. And I had to, you know, my family paid for my undergrad, which was awesome. It set me up. Um, I never would have even considered asking them for them to pay for my master's. I needed to do that on my own, but even though my college was only uh, 12 grand, I think they sent me a check for 28,000. And it's like, okay, you know, I could go on an awesome vacation. 
I could buy a new car. I could, you know, get a boat. I could do a lot of different things, but I remember I decided to send the rest of the money back that I didn't need it. Uh, but I know some other people sometimes take on all that money and they kind of view it like Christmas morning, but you're going to have to pay it back and you're going to have to pay it back with interest. So be careful with that. If you're somebody who's a young person, or maybe you go back to school, don't take what you don't need, but let's talk about the basics here. Federal loans versus private loans. Can you give us some elementary basics of some of the types of loans and which loans would qualify, which loans will not qualify you for forgiveness? Okay, so let's talk about, right now we're just talking about public service loan forgiveness. And the only loans that qualify are federal direct loans. So these are federal government loans. They are not private loans. Private loans don't um, have anything to do with public service loan forgiveness. Uh, There's another program called teacher loan forgiveness also. If you have private loans, those are given out by a bank or an institution that's totally different. And they're going to they're going to get their money from you, right? The government is willing to make some, um, you know, they're saying, okay, if you work in a public service field, you're probably taking on a lower um, pay to do that. And we're willing to subsidize some of that for you. So it has to be a, a federal direct loan. That's number one. The second thing is, is that you have to be in the right repayment options. So there's, a bunch of different repayment options that you could potentially have. But if you are in the extended or graduated repayment options, you don't qualify for public service loan forgiveness. And that's the one where I see a lot of times where people will think that they're on that path and they might be like six or seven years into it. And, uh, you know, I've had, I had a, a friend actually who came to me and said, can you look over my stuff? And I'm looking through it and I'm like, Hey man, you're not even in the right repayment program right now. You, you've made zero payments so far. And he thought that he only had three more years until his loans were forgiven completely. So again, though, it comes back to the education side of things, which the government doesn't really do a very good job of telling you about um, how to qualify for these programs. And then when you don't qualify, they're like, well, why didn't you learn type of thing? And so, uh, you know, what I always describe it as is trying to play a game where you don't know the rules to the game and then them telling you, you lose at the end. So, you know, you got you to gotta know the rules, but, um, but they don't make them very clear. So there are five repayment options that you can be in in order to qualify for public service loan forgiveness. And those are the income contingent repayment. Um, then there's income-based repayment. And there's both an old and a new, new version of that. So that's two and three. Then there's one that's called pay as you earn. And then there's a revised pay as you earn. So if you see any of those, and some of the acronyms of those is ICR, IBR, P-A-Y-E and R-E-P-A-Y-E. If you see those on any of your uh, documents, then you're in the right repayment program. Um, And so that's kind of one of the first steps is trying to figure out like, you know, do you even qualify? So as you get clients that come to you and and talk to you about, you know, um, possibly qualifying for one of these programs, um, you know, what do you, what, what do you look at? Do you have different advice based on the amount? Like I, I have a buddy who is a hundred thousand dollars in, in student loan debt right now. He kind of, it was like you, he took out or not, not like you, but like what you, what you warned against, you know, he was taking, he took on more than he needed to pay for living expenses and things like that. And then he ended up, you know, pretty deep in debt. Um, but I also have another friend who's only about, you know, maybe $11,000 in debt, student loan debt. So, I mean, that's a pretty wide disparity. Do you have different advice based on how much someone uh, owes? 
So, yes. Um, but the number one thing that I'll say is that I will also work with whatever their goal is, right? Mm -hmm. So, for example, if the $11,000, uh, if the person with the $11,000 worth of loans, uh, if their goal is to not pay off those loans and they want to go down the PSLF route, there, there could potentially be ways to look at that. And it would come down to how much are they making? Um, what's, how big is their family size? Do they have a spouse that could support their, their income? Because there's some interesting things that you can do um, because it's all based on your AGI, which is your adjusted gross income, and your family size. That's really how you find your student loan payment that you owe. So, um, you know, there's some interesting twists that you can do with your AGI, like putting more money into your 457, putting more money into your 403B, putting more money into that HSA. So that you can, can legally lower. hide some money, but it's legal. Of course. Legally hide it. Yep. Then you could choose to file your taxes married or separate. And if you file your taxes separate, they will only look at your income. So if you've got a spouse and then you, you can split your income and file your taxes separate and, um, and then start working on lowering your AGI by, by hiding it in some of these accounts, right? Then you could show without doing a whole lot of work, a $0 uh, payment for your, uh, for your student loans. So 11,000, I would recommend strongly that they did not go down that route though. Um, now, of course, if they really wanted to, I could help them and show them how to do it. But the reason why is because they're probably going to lose some tax benefits on the um, married filing separate. And, you know, with that, is it worth the $11,000 um, loan forgiveness over 10 year period? I would say probably not. The $100,000 uh, person that had the hundred thousand, hundred thousand dollars worth of loans. There's some, that's a lot of money, right? Oh, yeah. And there's some interesting things that you can do. And, um, you know, it would obviously be very dependent on how much they make and their family size, as I mentioned, but, uh, I would say, yeah, that, that's a very strong candidate. Usually whenever I'm talking to people, if their loans are higher than their salary, then it's an immediate sign that they should go down this route. For the people that are, that we're talking about, um, you know, twenty to forty thousand dollars, it kind of varies based on what they're trying to do and what they want to accomplish. Mm -hmm. And under twenty thousand dollars, generally, not all, always, um, it's would probably be best for them just to go ahead and pay it off. Yeah, I had a a question for you, and again, I'm I'm ignorant on this topic, so I'm so glad that you're here. I've learned so much already, to be honest, and I'm really engaged in what you've got to say. I used to be under the impression and correct me if I'm wrong, that in order to get student loans forgiven, you've got to be in a title one school, low income, high free and reduced lunch. Is this program available for anybody? You could be in a wealthy uh, suburban district or maybe uh, a situation in an inner city with, with high free and reduced lunch. Does it matter where you're teaching to do this or is this available to anybody as long as you have these direct federal loans. So that's an interesting point. So for the public service loan forgiveness, anybody qualifies who's in public service. So we're not even just talking about teachers. We're talking about, you know, for example, in a school, the custodian, the anybody that works in the front office, um, all teachers, you know, the lunch ladies, anybody that has student loans in a public service role inside of a school. And 
it could even be outside of school. So even the, the people that are listening to this that are non-teachers, um, if they're in a public service realm, they could qualify. Now, there is another program also, and this one's called the Teacher Loan Forgiveness. And I don't really want to get them confused, um, but there is a separate program. And that program is based on, um, you know, did you work in a Title I school? So that's where you're getting this from, I'm guessing. Yeah. And after you work for five consecutive years, then if you're in a math or science field or special education, math secondary, science secondary, SPED, any level, uh, then you can get $17,500 um, taken off of your loans. And if you're in any other teaching position, then you can get 5,000 if you're in the Title I school. So they're totally different programs. You also cannot do both of them at the same time. So if you're going after the teacher loan forgiveness, then uh, you have to make sure that you do the five years of that. And then if you still have a lot more loans, now, if you've got a, a large chunk of loans, um, it would be in your best interest to go after the public service loan forgiveness first, probably, right? But where I'll usually see this uh, as a, a big thing that comes up is for people that didn't know about it at all to begin with. And I, I'll talk to them and say, hey, do you happen to work in a Title I school? And they're like, yes. And I'm like, sign this paper. Let's turn it in. You just saved $17,500. And so they're like, whoa, that was crazy. You know, it's one of those where they just didn't know that they were, that they were even eligible. And um, wow. so that's kind of cool. You know, the, the Title I school, I taught in a Title I school for six years actually. Um, but, uh, well, I say it was for six years. There was one or two of those years where I think we lost our title one status. Um, and I guess that happens. And then that kind of, does that mess up that five? It's gotta be five consecutive years, right? So it does not mess it up. So it does if not. your school qualifies for the first, like, let's say whatever it is that you're working for year one, right. And mm -hmm. it doesn't necessarily have to be like, it could be a, uh, let's say that your year's Year number six of your teaching, let's, I'm just going to play with some numbers. Year number six, your school goes into Title I, um, it gets the accreditation for Title I. I don't know if it's accreditation or not, but they become a Title I school. Uh, and then you work there for five consecutive uh, years after that, but it loses that Title I status. You would still qualify. Oh, wow. Just because the one year in there, now you'd still have to work for five years. So that's the, that's the key though, is that you've got to put in five years, but, but so you, you can go back and look on, there's a, several websites, um, but you can go back and look. And if your school, you know, let's say five years ago qualified, then you qualify for teacher loan forgiveness now. Brandon, can you hit on the, the, the stat that you found for us earlier when we talked today? And I know it's very low, the percentage of people who actually end up getting the forgiveness when you did some research it's a very yeah. low percentage of people that get it right and actually really didn't even uh do a whole lot of research actually this just came off of the dave ramsey show and um uh, in 2017 over 30,000 people applied and less than one far less than one percent actually um wasn't uh, was given the the forgiveness and the first thing I thought was, is, uh, you know, I, that, that's just an unbelievable stat. And so anybody that can help guide someone through this process um, is, is worth their weight in gold because nobody is successful at this, apparently, you know, very few. Yeah. Why wouldn't you, if you're listening to this show today, why would you not reach out to David, the budget teacher and literally 
I'd be willing to bet a 30 to 45, maybe an hour long conversation could potentially over the course of maybe a decade, you know, getting the process going, it could save you six figures worth of money. I mean, that's a heck of a down payment on a house. That's a life changing money. So David, what you're doing, leading people on a path, giving them all the different hoops that they have to jump through and holding their hand as they go through it. Wow. If we could turn those numbers around from 1% up to 99% of the people take advantage of this, let's do it. Let's make it happen and help the teachers out there. So I will say this also on, on that stat is it's a very, um, it's one of those where the, the stat is, has been inflated, right? It's because here's the reason the, the program only started in 2007, right? That's when they came up with this public uh, service loan forgiveness, even the program at all. So then you have to put in 10 years, right? So the first group of people were never, uh, uh, there was no student loan forgiveness like this prior to 2017. And then you have this issue where um, a whole bunch of people are like, oh yeah, I'm going to qualify. But like I said before, they didn't know the rules, right? So um, so that first group really, uh, you know, they might have not know, have known what they were doing, but I think that they were also just applying because they heard some rumor of, of loan forgiveness. And it doesn't work nearly at, at all like that. You have to go through so many hoops. And, you know, you know, as Dave, as you mentioned, um, it's kind of one of the things I've talked about as well, um, you know, in my past, but it is so worth it. Like, for example, I helped this gal recently who um, has $72,000 of loans. And if we're talking about 10 year period, um, her loans are 6.8% interest, right? So we're, we're talking about they're going to double every uh, in nine years, I guess, on that. And so they're going to be, what, 100 and, uh, 124,000 or 100, 140,000. Yeah, there we go. Math teacher brain d- didn't kick in right there. Uh, $140,000 of loans by the time it's all said and done. And because of where she's living in middle Missouri and making a lower income uh, paycheck, she's going to pay $0 on those loans from now until, until they're done. And so she's going to save $140,000 in 10 years. So how do you, I think you said earlier that it's contingent on making the payment every month. So if you're someone in her situation, who's maybe at the beginning of the teaching uh, scale in maybe a lower paying district, does she still have to like click a submit button that has like 0.00 for the payment every month? And if you forget to make that payment every 30 days, even though it's nothing like now, all of a sudden you have to start back over. How does that work? And what happens if you do miss a payment? Let's say that I'm nine years. It's kind of a loaded question, but if I'm nine years into this and I want to take my wife to, to Mexico and have a romantic trip talking budgets and 529s and all the things that we love to talk about, what happens if, you know, my, my flight gets delayed. Uh, I, I don't have internet and now I miss my payment by a couple of days. Am I screwed? Is this whole process done for me? How does that all work? So for the PSLF program, you have to have 120 qualifying payments. A qualifying payment is an on-time payment, but it doesn't have to be consecutive. So nine years in, you know, you're going to want to make sure that you're getting on it. But throughout the 10 year period, um, no, it, it won't hurt you, but it's one of those where how bad do you want it type of thing. And so, um, what I do tell people though, is never pay more than what is owed. Right. And so, uh, and you know, people might be listening to that and say, well, what do you mean? 
isn't what you owe what you owe? Not at all, because we can use our numbers to bring down how much we owe for the government, right? So uh, they've made these rules. And, and as long as you play by the rules, um, to, you know, there's a lot of things that you can do. And so, for example, for, for that gal's case, we got her payment down to zero dollars. And, um, and that's where she's going to be for the next 10 years, unless something crazy happens. And that's probably another big thing to talk about is um, who knows what this will look like in a 10 year period, right? Nothing is, is given hundred percent. This is where we are right now. These are the rules that we know right now. And these are the, the, the set of uh, the scenarios that we have been given right now, but could that change? Well, sure. I have no idea what the government will do. And I, and I'm not the government, so I can't, I can't say that. I do believe um, that if you start on this path that you'll be grandfathered in, but again, I can't, I can't promise that to anybody either. So, you know, basically, <laughs> if somebody is thinking about going down this road, um, contacting someone like you is a really good idea. <laughs> it's a really good idea because I'm listening to you talk and, and, I, and I understand some of it, but uh, and, and I would have to go back and re-listen and write some stuff down probably and go do some reading and, you know, because some of that stuff was completely foreign to me, uh, which I'm sure some people that are listening will do that very thing. So, um, you're offering a tremendous service um, through your financial coaching and through helping people navigate the student loan um, <laughs> minefield uh, of trying to find student loan forgiveness. So let me, uh, you know, this is for anybody out there that's, that's wants to know how complicated this is. I'm just going to give it a little bit of, of the complications. There were those five different um, income driven repayment programs that I was talking about earlier. All of those are based on what years you borrowed loans. Because the problem is, is that uh, each new administration that comes in tries to update something, right? So then um, they, they change a little bit along the way. So for example, um, the newest income-based repayment, IBR, you have to be a new borrower after 2014, uh, after July 1st of 2014. To do pay as you earn, you have to be a new borrower after October 1st, 2007, and you have to have taken out a loan after October 1st of 2011. Um, and then there's different nuances inside all of these as well. And how your payment is calculated changes based on every single repayment option also. So yes, so, um, it's one of those where, you know, I always tell people, you can do it on your own. You could go out and learn it. But if you mess it up, um, you know, how big of a you know, how much is the, the cost of what we're going to do now compared to, um, you know, the life of your loan, more or less, and, and you have to weigh those options. And I'm not, I don't necessarily just want to sell myself, as long as there, there's people out there that are called Certified Student Loan Professionals, CSLPs. There's a website that shows all of them. Find somebody that knows what they're doing and get that help because it's, you know, it's kind of like for, for me, um, I would have no idea what I'm doing as far as selling a house. I don't want to sell a house on my own and I want to try to make the maximum amount of money on my house. I'm going to hire a realtor, right? Do you uh, do your own dental work though? Uh, no, I do not, uh, Dave. And as a matter of fact, um, I was just thinking as he was saying that, um, that, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm reluctant to even try to do any sort of work around the house uh, <laughs> for fear of screwing it up. And then the consequences being severe, the consequences you're talking about are far more severe than the consequences that I would be dealing with around the house. So um, my dad makes fun of me all the time because I always say, just call the guy, <laughs> call, call the guy, man. I mean, he's got to make a living too, and you don't know what you're doing. 
So anyway, um, yeah. and I, that's pretty much one of my rules in life um, is to call the guy. But anyway, I'm like, well, that we need to call the guy, David. Uh, and I think, David, you're helping people because I think we all realize most of the people listening to this show, it's water under the bridge. They've already the damage is done. They've done what they've done. But some of these people have nieces and nephews and they've got children of their own who might be approaching high school or they're in high school. It sounds like if I'm going to take out a loan for college, which many of us have to do, it sounds like I want to make sure that they're federal direct loans and steer clear of those private loans. Uh, if you are going to go into, into the teaching profession. And I think that gives hope to teachers that, Hey, maybe I take out $60,000 because I can't afford to pay for it as I go. But if I can get up with someone like you, you can navigate, you know, even while I'm in college, before I graduate, how I'm not going to have to pay all of that money back. Uh, and then I can enjoy my life as a teacher and, and take the money that I would have spent on the student loans and the, the 6.8% interest. Then I can go earn 6.8 to maybe 12%. And the money I would have spent on loans, now I can spend on funding my Roth IRA, my 403B, et cetera. You know, one of the interesting things that you mentioned earlier when you were doing your recap from last week is about being uh, very debt, um, not wanting any debt, right? Fear of uh, debt. Yeah. Fear of debt. And it's one of those interesting things with the student loan program because um, I, I'm not going to say go out and take on debt, right? The, I don't believe in that. Like if you, if you need to do it, I understand, but I'm not saying take on extra, right? But um, you, to, to go down this route, to go down the public service loan you know, landscape, you have to be willing to sit on that debt for 10 years and just let it be. Right. And it's kind of a weird spot because so many times we're, we want to pay off debt as quickly as possible. Right. And in this one, you don't actually want that. You want to just let it sit and know that after a 10 year period uh, that it's going to be gone. We're hoping. Right. And that if we've done all the right things and if the, the program's still around then that's the, the, the end goal there. Very, very good information. Um, and I want to shift gears as we wrap up for the last five minutes here. And this could be student loans. This can be anything. Your wife's a teacher. You're a teacher. Your parents were teachers. What advice would you give a first-year teacher if they came to you? They just graduated college. They're getting ready to start their teaching career when it comes to their finances. Number one, get on a budget. Here's the reason why is because your first year of teaching, uh, and I, I like to use this, this term, although it's not necessarily the right term, but you're never going to be as poor as that first year, right? And so I don't care whether you're making $70,000 a year or making $30,000 a year or even less. Um, the, there's the way that, well, every salary schedule I've ever seen is, is based on years of service and education. And so uh, if you can get a grasp on your money in year one, and then, you know, you have an idea of where things are coming in, where things are going out, and then you get that little bump the next year, right? And so then take that money and start trying to figure out what you want to do with it for the future, whether that's uh, building a family, buying a house, investments, whatever the case may be. Uh, five, six, seven, 10 years down the road, that once you have that money managed in the beginning, you're going to start looking at things and being like, wow, I've, I've got so much surplus. What do I want to do? And that creates options in your life. And I think that it's all about the options. That's awesome. That's awesome advice. What about someone who is at the end of their teaching career and you know, let's say, um, you know, just to give a scenario, let, let's say they've mostly done the right things. They've lived within their means, you know, and um, maybe they haven't invested much. 
uh, or maybe they have invested some, uh, what kind of advice would you give to someone that's heading towards the end of their teaching career? I guess it'd probably be the same thing, especially if you're living on a fixed income after you have retired. I, I truly believe that the budget changed my life. And um, so I don't care really whether you're a first year teacher or a year 30 teacher. Uh, I think that it can do wonderful things for you. I, I think that's probably even more important though at, at that later time, um, because you know if you have a pension bringing in, let's say $4,000, well, you don't wanna be above that because then that means that you're gonna start eventually taking on debt or tapping into whatever other savings you have. And so, um, you know, being aware of your money, I think is just an, an incredibly important thing. On top of that, I guess that uh, I would say, hey, you got to enjoy your life. If you've been putting in that time in, into uh, teaching, you know, teaching can be rough. Uh, if you've been in it for 30 years, I, that's a lot of, uh, I give a lot of respect to, to you for that because that's a, you know, big, a big time commitment. And so, Make sure that you find something that you enjoy with your with your time, and you know maybe that's finding another job that you enjoy or a different career path or whatever it might be at that point. But uh, here in Missouri, most people will retire by the time that they're uh, 52 to 55, and so you know you got a whole another life that you could live after that. So where can our listeners find you? If we have people out there that would love to contact you and reach out and maybe learn more about their situation, where can they get a hold of you? So there's, there's a, a lot of spots they can find me. I've, I, my website's thebudgetteacher.com. Um, they could also find me on Instagram. I'm at the underscore budget underscore teacher. And I've also got a podcast called the Budget Teacher Podcast. And so um, where actually we had a, this great guest not too long ago, um, this guy named Dave Fleischer. <laughs> I had a lot of fun. I really appreciate you. Uh, just like Angie, Angie came up with uh, the financially independent teacher's name. She was our guest for episode three. I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing as a little bit of a side hustle, even though I'm still teaching. And I wouldn't have had the confidence to do it if you didn't take the time for free to sit down with me with a guy that you had never met and be willing to offer advice and to give me the inspiration to do it. So I'm really, really thankful for the role that you've had in, in my personal finance journey as a coach. So you thank know, you very much. One of my big things is that, uh, and this has just been my mission um, probably for about three years now is to help teachers with their money. Because I think that, uh, you know, if we can get that one aspect of our lives under control, it flows out into a lot of different aspects, including how well we can teach our kids. And so if other teachers reach out to me asking for help on anything, uh, like how you did whenever you were talking about wanting to become a financial coach and doing podcasting. Um, yeah, of course, you know, I want to help you because now look at what you're doing. You're spreading the message to all these other teachers. Somebody's going to pick that up. They're going to spread the message to other teachers. It's a, it's a flow that I love to be a part of. What we're running into is a lot of people on the show who, uh, who want to reach out and help other teachers because they know the struggle. And um, they know how easy it is to, if you're not careful to get in trouble. I mean, you know, we, we don't make a tremendous amount, but we make enough to where we can really create wealth if we make wise decisions. And so I really want to thank you for coming on the show and, and, and listening to you and the advice you gave. Um, it was really outstanding. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. What a, what a great treat that that was. I learned a lot and I can't wait to, take this to another level and pick your brain a little bit so I can try to help some teachers as well on the student loan. So thank you guys, everybody for joining this episode of the fit educator podcast. 
We hope you join us for next week's episode. And remember, someone is sitting in the shade today because they planted a tree a long time ago. Uh, Please consider subscribing and leaving a review on Facebook. And don't forget to look for us at Financially Independent Teachers at Facebook and GetFitEducator at gmail.com. Until next time, everybody. Thank you very much.